This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Dr. Nathan Pumplin, President and CEO of Norfolk Healthy Produce. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Dr. Nathan Pumplin next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 445 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. As the White House this week sets its sights on hunger, health, and nutrition, the agriculture community looks to opportunities to achieve goals both in productivity and sustainability. Dr. Nathan Pumplin with Norfolk Healthy Produce applauds USDA approval of their genetically modified purple tomato and believes genetic engineering is a resource to provide more food, better food, and protect the environment. Norfolk Healthy Produce is a very recent company. We just got started at the end of last year, but we have a long history of developing innovative products in the produce space. We were founded in the UK by scientists doing basic plant biology research, looking for ways to improve the nutrition that comes from the food we grow and also improve the sustainability of the food that we grow. They focused on a set of technologies, of biotechnologies, which are extremely powerful. They hold a lot of promise, but they've been very limited on their impact in a lot of markets. And as it happens, there is not a path to market in the UK for most of these products. In the US, there is a path to market. And so that's why we started Norfolk Healthy Produce. So we are the US-based commercial entity of Norfolk Plant Sciences. And we're focused on bringing to market within the US these, what we feel are improved, differentiated, highly beneficial products. Who developed this purple tomato? And how long did it take to bring that idea to the desired result? So the developer is Professor Kathy Martin, and she is a scientist at the John Innes Center in Norfolk in the United Kingdom, in, in Norwich. And Kathy has studied for decades plants and what controls different nutrients and different colors. She started out studying flowers, studying snapdragon flowers, and she asked a very basic scientific question. Why are some flowers colored and some flowers have no color? And what she learned was there are two genes which are responsible for turning on the synthesis of colored pigments that give the flowers their colors. And Kathy is not just a brilliant scientist. She is a diabetic, and she spent her entire life making very careful decisions about her diet, the food that she eats, because it has a big impact on her health. And of course, the foods that we eat have a big impact on all of our health. So she knew that the pigments in these flowers, they're called anthocyanins, 
and they're very healthy. They're the things that make blueberries superfoods. And she wondered if these genes from snapdragons were put into a tomato fruit, could they make a purple tomato that's very high in these beneficial nutrients, these anthocyanins? And sure enough, when she tried that, it worked. And this is, let's say, a 10 to 20 year arc of basic scientific painstaking research to get to the point of the eureka moment where, wow, we have a extremely dark purple tomato. So is the purple tomato genetically modified or gene edited? The purple tomato is a full-on bioengineered crop variety. It's what people would call a genetically modified organism. It is not gene edited. So there's been no CRISPR used to make this product. Could you have achieved the same result with natural selection? Given millions and millions of years, it could be possible, but it hasn't happened yet to have a fully purple flesh tomato evolve. What has evolved by natural selection is purple skinned tomatoes. And you've probably seen these at the grocery store. There's cherry tomatoes, there's heirloom tomatoes. They have a very dark purple, even black outer coating. When you cut the tomato open, usually inside it's red, like a typical tomato. That pigment that makes those tomatoes naturally purple, it's the same anthocyanin pigment that's in our purple tomatoes. What Kathy's brilliant development was, was to bring in not a new chemical, a new nutrient, but an on switch that allows those nutrients to be created in more parts of the tomato, in more cells. Now, the question, going back to your earlier question, would it be possible to use CRISPR to make this? It may be possible to do. We don't know yet a way to do this, but what we know is Kathy's approach using plant genes from an edible flower works extremely well. And this is a great example of a nature-based solution of biomimicry. We're using our understanding of nature to develop a process to improve the foods that we eat. And one other fun fact, when Kathy first published The Purple Tomato, this happened years before CRISPR was even discovered. How has the food industry responded to this new paradigm? A tomato with different color. What about taste and traits that are the same and yet different than a traditional tomato? Universally, the food industry loves this product. People in the restaurant industry, in the produce industry, in the crop breeding industry, they look at this and they say, this is so cool, this is so beautiful, and it speaks to needs that consumers have. It has increased nutrition, which is something that consumers are looking for. It has a really distinctive aesthetic appeal, which is something that we're always looking for. You know, one, one thing people often say in the industry, people buy with their eyes. You know, people eat with their eyes, they taste with their eyes, and you look at this tomato and it's just striking how dark purple it is. The flavor piece is critical. So that's usually the first question I get. Sure, you have a purple tomato. Well, how does it taste? And the answer is, it tastes like a great tomato. The things that determine a tomato's flavor are all of the genetics and breeding that went into it and also the production. So farming matters a lot. <laughs> it's got to be grown well and 
handled well and delivered to the store well and in time in order to get great flavor. A tomato has about 30,000 genes, and our purple tomatoes have two added in. They give the color, they give the nutrients, but what controls the flavor or determines the flavor of the tomato is many of the other genes and how it's grown. GMO foods were labeled by activists as Frankenstein food. I witnessed personally pushback to genetically modified crops in Japan several years ago. Some countries even to this day reject genetically modified crops or others willing to pay premiums for non-GMO varieties. So facing this headwind, your company moved ahead. Why? It's not because we're foolish. It's because we were started by scientists who understand the potential of this technology and also understand the safety of the technology. And we've been following, just like you and many of your listeners, the history of the anti-GMO movement, the resistance to the technology. And we feel that it's quite unfortunate that GMOs have been labeled as Franken foods, that many consumers um, try to avoid them. And we really feel that there's an opportunity to start a new conversation, not about technology per se, but about the impacts that we want to have with our food, the types of foods that we want to eat, the types of benefits that we want to get as consumers, and the impacts that we want to have on the climate. When you look at it from that perspective, then you say, okay, we have a lot of problems. We have a lot of health and nutrition problems, particularly in our country. We're looking for ways to produce more food, higher quality food, but improving the impacts that that production has on the environment. And in order to do that, we look at what are the tools that we have at our disposal. We have improved farming methods, such as what people are labeling regenerative agriculture. And this is hugely important. Um, we have different types of production methods. We have plant breeding, which has been extremely important over the last 100 years to produce lots, lots more food with less inputs. All of this has given us a more efficient food production system, but there's a lot of areas where we can improve. And again, we're looking at the tools that we have as scientists, as plant breeders, as food marketers. We have traditional breeding, we have production. Now we have gene editing and we have GMOs. And none of these are silver bullets, but we believe that by pulling together the appropriate tool for the appropriate job, we can continue to innovate and make better and better products that meet consumers' needs and have benefits throughout the supply chain and into the environment. In an interview recently with the Associated Press, Bill Gates said the global hunger crisis cannot be solved by food aid alone. Gates went on to say that farming technology was needed and what he called magic seeds or genetically engineered seed would be needed. So here's the question for you. Is the purple tomato a forerunner of other crops with output traits that consumers someday might demand from the food industry? Absolutely. Unequivocally, yes. And and here's why I believe this. The purple tomato is a product that is unabashedly bioengineered. 
you know, we stand behind our technology. We're proud of the work that went into it. And it is something that some consumers will look at and say, thanks, but no thanks. I, I have concerns about GMOs. I don't want to eat them. And that's wonderful. We completely support that. And there's many options in the marketplace that are organic certified, non-GMO. For those consumers who say, I've, I've looked at the safety and I know that, that GMOs are deemed to be no different from conventional versions at a high level. It depends on the details of the crop. Um, I want a purple tomato. I want a pink pineapple. I want mustard greens that are healthy but not so bitter tasting. Um, I want an apple that doesn't turn brown. This is the kind of consumer decision. If consumers are allowed to make those choices, we believe many, many will get behind. Um, because it does offer things that consumers are looking for. Some of those examples may sound a little bit trivial. You know, what's the impact in the world of a purple tomato? But there's many things that are not trivial. What's the impact of crop losses? What's the impact of massive diseases that can wipe out whole crops and lead to starvation and famine? And one of the best ways that we know how to prevent that and to ensure food security is through genetic resistance to pathogens in the environment. And we can accomplish resistance through traditional breeding to an extent. But there's many situations where genetic modification offers a realistic, much faster approach. And in some cases, it's the only approach to get resistance to a devastating disease. And the unfortunate situation is we know technologically how to do this, but it's held back from many markets because consumers are scared of GMOs. They have concerns. And let me say, um, I'm very sympathetic to these concerns. I'm sympathetic to the way that GMOs first came on the market and many, many consumers just not being comfortable with it. What I think is needed and what I think will help support Bill Gates's challenge, and I agree with him, by the way, is products that consumers can see, okay, I have a benefit. I want to choose this. I am now becoming comfortable with this technology. I'm learning a little bit more about it. And, you know, Jeff, I've had so many conversations with people who say, I would never eat a GMO. I think they're bad. And I say, well, why is that? I ask questions. I say, well, you know, I, I have a PhD in plant biology. Here's, here's what I know and here's what I've seen. And, and people open up their minds very quickly and say, oh, wow, I didn't realize there was all these benefits. I've only heard one side of the story. So I am very hopeful that we are entering a new era of solving urgent, critical problems to our society in the U.S. and globally with technology. I think genetic engineering represents a very powerful set of tools, but it's not a silver bullet. It needs to fit within a system that is developing new crop varieties, new production methods, new distribution methods that ultimately is ensuring food security, nutritional security globally. And I'm really encouraged coming from the plant biology community, um, having visited research institutes in India, throughout the world, seeing the type of breakthroughs that scientists are making. And I think, for instance, CRISPR is a extremely seminal discovery. 
but so is genetic modification. If we can come together as developers of new varieties of food production systems and really use the tools at our disposal, we have an opportunity to make huge gains in productivity. And I think this is, this is really the largest challenge of our time. So by executive order recently, President Biden calling on departments and agencies to take steps to increase the use of bio-based products and identify barriers to ag biotechnology. He's calling on USDA, FDA, and EPA to identify areas of ambiguity, gaps, or uncertainties in the federal regulatory system for biotech. I take this as welcome news uh, for you and for your industry. Uh, the question is, can you identify areas that really need to change to make the pathway easier from development to consumers and still guarantee safety of product? President Biden's executive order is, is very exciting and very impactful because it aligns entirely with Norfolk Plant Sciences' perspective and also the perspective of the vast majority of scientists, which is what I said. Biotech has a huge potential role to play. I want to give credit to the USDA for the new regulation, which has already reduced a very major barrier and given a path to market. I think there's another area of regulation which is very important, and that's the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. They currently have a consultation process in place to review new crops, new foods made with biotechnology and review them for safety. It is extremely important that our, our regulatory bodies review new products because it's important that they're safe and it's important that the public has trust in their safety. Biotechnology is morally ambiguous. It's really important to know what is the modification that was made with biotech, what's the impact that it has, what are some of the safety concerns? Is this really safe, yes or no? And that question needs to be asked and addressed in a way that is thorough, that protects the public, but also that doesn't prevent innovations from reaching the market. And so it needs to be at a reasonable cost and a reasonable time while still ensuring safety. I am very encouraged by news that the FDA, or let's say resources that the FDA released earlier this year, on the safety of biotechnology crops, of how widespread they are, of how people have been eating them in the U.S. since the 90s, and there's no example of any adverse health effects from them. And I believe that that's an important step forward, and I hope to see more developments on the regulatory framework that really help to ensure the products getting out to market do so safely, but do so in a timely manner so they can have an impact, because we know the challenges that we're facing are very urgent. So can consumers now enjoy the purple tomato? And what stands in the way, if they can't, of being able to enjoy this and other products? We are still on the path to commercialization. We don't yet have purple tomatoes available for consumers. We have a few pieces in front of us. One, I mentioned the FDA consultation process. So we're still in conversation with FDA as they look at our product and decide, is this um, safe like any other tomato? We know that people eat lots of anthocyanins 
in blueberries and in other foods. We know that people eat anthocyanins in purple skins tomatoes. Um, Norfolk's tomatoes have a little bit more anthocyanins. So is this really safe to go into the food system? And again, we welcome the discussion with the FDA and the consultation because it's important that new products are deemed to be safe and that the public has trust in these. What we're moving towards for a commercial path is working with growers in the U.S. who have distribution channels where we can engage directly with consumers. So we are looking to make purple tomatoes available at farmer's markets, at farm stands, at certain restaurants with chefs who are really excited about this beautiful new product. And what we want to do is engage with customers and find out what do they love about the purple tomato, how do they like to see it, have a conversation, um, listen to the concerns that they have, make sure that we're being transparent, providing all the information on the product, and we want to ensure that the product that we're getting out to customers is really great. So we know it's not enough to say, hey, we have we have a special purple tomato, um, isn't everyone going to love it? If it doesn't taste good, if it's not flavorful, if it's not a great tomato in its own right, nobody wants it, and, and I agree. So we want to ensure that it's not just a purple tomato that's high in nutrients, but it's a tomato that is a wonderful eating experience. It's a conversation piece. Um, it's the kind of thing I think um, belongs on anyone's dinner table who's excited to embrace the future of food, really look with open eyes at the challenges we're facing and figure out how they can be a part. It's the kind of product I think could be in the Museum of Modern Art, for instance. I mean, it's a beautiful example of human understanding of the natural world and using that understanding to develop improved products to solve problems. Um, I, I find it no uh, coincidence or perhaps coincidence that all of this discussion is coming now in advance of the White House meeting coming up on the 28th with regard to nutrition and health and hunger in the nation, clearly this is a technology that may be up for debate. Well, and I'm also very pleased about that, Jeff. I think one of the things that's really important is that we continue to have debate, continue to have discussions about what are the most pressing challenges, what are the opportunities that we have to meet those challenges. And the challenges that we're facing the world as far as malnutrition in the 60s in Norman Borlaug's time are different from the challenges that we faced in the 90s, and they're different from the challenges that we face now. And I think one of the, one of the encouraging signs is if we can continue to have discourse, open, objective, um, challenging, but also respectful, where we're proposing things, we're listening, and we're constantly looking at what are the resources and the tools we have at hand, what's the most pressing challenge to meet, how can we do that together. And I think if you look at the history of GMOs from that perspective, they were first released in the 90s to great fanfare. So I live in Davis, California, the home of CalGene, which developed the first marketed biotech product, the Flavor Saver Tomato, and it was marketed for consumer appeal, it was going to have extended shelf life, better flavor. Consumers loved it. They bought a ton of it, but it was not a commercial success. Then we had the anti-GMO movement say, GMOs are bad, here's all the problems with them, and now if you ask most people about GMOs, either they don't know what they are 
or they think they're bad. And, you know, there's various reasons and various justifications for that. But what I welcome is a new conversation about how could we use the science? How can we use the objective facts around our understanding of biology to improve our food systems, improve our health, improve our nutrition? And I really, really welcome this this new era and this discussion. Well, Dr. Nathan Pumplin, we recognize your work and your company's work on behalf of consumers, uh, on behalf of farmers, and just the good of the world. Uh, we thank you for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and today, Doc, you have the last word. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for having me on Open Mic. I really appreciate your interest. This is an exciting time that we're in right now, and I really look forward to the coming years and the improvements that the entire industry is able to deliver to our food system. Our thanks to Dr. Nathan Pumplin, President and CEO of Norfolk Healthy Produce our guest this week on Open Mike. AgriPulse Open Mike is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.